Welcome to the Spacecraft Podcast, presented by Dan Moscrop and brought to you by them.co.uk, who provides specialist graphic design support for commercial architects, developers and interior designers. Joined today by Torby Milden, and who's kindly uh, taken a little bit of time out of a conference today, uh, the D&I conference in Hilton in London. Um, so if there's a bit of bustle and noise in the background, um, I'm, I'm sure you'll, you'll understand why. So Toby is a typical underachiever. He's only worked at places like the BBC and Deloitte and now has his own business. How's that transition been? Been really great, actually. Running my own business means that I can work with people that I really enjoy working with. I could be a lot more creative in terms of creating programmes and products and things like that. So, so far, it's, it's going really well. And, and what's your job role? So it's diversity and inclusivity. Yeah, so... Over the last few years, I've, I've been an in-house diversity and inclusion manager. I've taken all of that learning and all of that knowledge into my own business. But fundamentally, I'm really interested in sort of two key areas, and that is systemic bias that we often mm-hmm. find in systems and creating uh, really inclusive cultures because uh, you know, Peter Drucker once said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. So when you talk about systemic bias... Do you want to expand a little on that? Companies will often put managers and leaders through unconscious bias training, which addresses the, you know, the human nature of bias. And, you know, we're all biased. Um, we all have bias within our psyche. But what I'm fundamentally interested in is actually bias that we find within systems because systems within businesses will drive behaviour, they drive decision-making and things like that. So if you have a system which is, say, um, helping a particular group of people progress through the organisation faster than another group of people or it's locking talent out of an organisation, then that system has to be fixed if you're going to have equality and inclusion and diversity within your business. So so you're looking to go into businesses and find ways of breaking out their systems to make them less biased? Yeah, I I would say I'm a bit like an engineer. I I go in, I say, give me a a process that's causing a bit of friction for you um, that you, you think might be causing some issues. And I'm going to break it apart, find out where the, the fault is and put it back together and give you a much more efficient working process. Well, so much more involved then. Yeah. And, mm. and my, my kind of philosophy is that as organisations are kind of like, you know, machines <laughs> and full of systems and processes, that those are the things that need to be addressed. And that does affect people's behaviours. Um, so there's kind of a, a reverse effect there. And what sort of results are you seeing from that when you go in and, and you, you implement your new systems? So one, one of the things is that quite often people within an organisation will start addressing a problem. Like, for example, they will ask themselves, you know, why is it that we don't have many women at the top of the organisation? They will then start to make some sort of assumptions about why that's happening. They may not have all the data to be able to make an informed decision. So then they start tackling the wrong problem. So I'll give you an example. So um, an organisation might say that you know, the reason why they don't have enough women at the top of the organisation is because they're not having exposure to enough kind of big projects that, that help them define their career and put them on the map for when it comes to having those promotional conversations. But then the answer might be, well, there's unconscious bias 
you know, human unconscious bias happening in terms of me as a human not giving you opportunities. Yeah. But actually, the way that I see it is that it's the system. So the, the work allocation system is at fault. So if you're a law firm, for example, you know, how are cases allocated to your lawyers? Is there bias? You know, are men getting you know, all the really big, hard-hitting, profile-building cases um, over women, for example? And why is that? Is it down to the way that you allocate casework? And, and human bias, is that improving in your eyes? Or like, are, we, are we getting less bias? Well, the thing is, hu- human bias or unconscious bias or implicit bias um, is human nature. Mm. We all have it. Unconscious bias training is a good way of raising awareness... But some of the latest research that's being done is suggesting that now, there are now unintended consequences of running unconscious bias training. Because if I tell you, if you, if you were unaware that um, you were biased towards people with disabilities, for example, and now I tell you that you are, having done the implicit bias test that Harvard University designed, next time you are in a position to make a decision about somebody like who to hire or who to promote or who to let go in a redundancy that is going to start informing your your decision making now so you might go well actually I know that I am slightly biased towards disabled people there's a disabled person in in the mix for being made redundant Um, I'm going to retain that person or I'm not going to retain that person. Rather than based on merit. Yeah rather than based on merit they might not be the best person for the job or they might be the best person for the job so that's why I'm really interested in systems bias because it's a little, it's a little bit less removed. Takes some of the emotion out of, yeah, out of the yeah. decision making. I noticed on your LinkedIn um, profile that you're connected to the Hoxby Collective. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about those guys. Yeah, so the Hoxby Collective is a really interesting organisation. They've got two sides to the organisation. They they are a business. They provide business services, so things like uh, marketing services finance, HR, operations, that kind of thing. The other side of their business is they're radically trying to change the world of work. They have a completely agile and flexible workforce. um, And they're trying to, through that business model, they're trying to remove bias from the world of work. They are an organisation to watch. Yeah, so Mm. moving away from presenteeism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, they've got people working for them globally, those people work whenever they want to, wherever they want to, however they want to. Hoxby basically provide the, the platform and the systems for the whole team to be able to work together. But people are not measured on how long they spend at the office. It's purely based on, on merit and the fact that they can work however they want to work. It's funny. I mean, we, we're sort of... I'd like to think I'd be happy to do Agile with my team and when we've sort of been looking for new people to join our team a lot of the guys will be like oh but they've got to be able to do nine to five five days a week because we need somebody here to support us and even you know as much as I try to fight that feeling I, I'm, I'm guilty of it myself the presenteeism aspect and even my girlfriend who I keep trying to convince to go into um, she's a PA and I wanted to be a virtual PA so she gets the freedom of being able to move around and and, and enjoy life with the kids and things but she she's frozen out of that oh no but I've got to go to work you know we, we, I think 
we're in a stage now where everything's changing and, and, and there's even people, I don't think I'm that old even though I'm knocking on 45's door, but I do, I do feel that there's a lot of mental change that people like me have got to make before it becomes widely accepted. Yeah, certainly um, younger people entering the workforce now um, expect agile, flexible working. Mm. There's plenty of evidence out there that says that agile, flexible ways of working will make a more productive Mm. business and organisation. You know, there are organisations, I don't know if you've seen recently, organisations that are reducing down to four days a week. I think Virgin are one, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, paying their employees five, five days, but working four days. Um, I mean, that's only one aspect of agile working. Um, the thing is, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. You know, I've worked in organisations that have had the same things where they've said, you know, but our clients need us. And I, and I would challenge that and say, you know, really? You know, um, you know part, part of the problem is that we're operating at a 24-7 world now it is very difficult for people to switch off when you go home you're you're still working on your mobile phone answering emails and working on documents on the cloud and you know and that's all fantastic technology and that kind of technology is is allowing organizations like Hoxby for example to operate with a global people all over the world using technology to operate in the cloud I suppose it's still relatively new isn't it so we're still adapting I mean when you look at the typical workspace it's still basically a cotton factory isn't it you've got a pyramid pyramid style uh, management process you've got uh, an environment where people are working in lines and I think because we've uh, certainly somebody my age where I've done it all my life that's just what's normal is yeah. um, where you're right a lot of new people and I hate to call them millennials but people coming into the business are like well why do we have to work till six <laughs> yeah you know it's fair enough I've finished organizations that aren't agile are really going to suffer in the future because with globalisation, working across different time zones, working a standard nine-to-five in the UK will be detrimental to your business yeah. because you're going to struggle to work with organisations on the other side of the globe. You've got the whole talent perspective as well, the expectations of people entering the workforce wanting, you know, they really do want to work in a different way. They don't want to have one job nine to five. They want a bit more of a portfolio career. Mm. They want to work for a couple of places. They do want that flexibility in terms of where they work and when they work. Organisations that don't embrace Agile will really struggle in the future to be able to attract and keep talent. There's also really practical benefits to a business, not only productivity-wise, but you could have a much smaller office floor plate if you've got if you've got people working agile as well you know so literally bums on seats wise you can save quite a lot of money there yeah you can save on office office costs um by allowing your people to work in different locations and it's interesting because you said about the cotton factory i do think that you know we we haven't kind of got rid of that industrial age mentality yeah where business is done in a factory it's like offices are, I suppose, just the equivalent of a modern-day factory where we expect people to come and churn out widgets. And we're in a different age now. We're, you know, we're working in a creative age, in a, an experience age, in a knowledge age. And it, it demands a different way of working. I'm, sh- I'm sure some of the best ideas that you've had in your 
your work when not at your desk. It's usually when I wake up in the morning, actually. Just, yeah. You've been thinking about it all night long, although I've had some very bad ideas on the morning that I'd scribbled down <laughs> quite poor. But it's like, yeah, it's, it's like if we don't get our best ideas at our desk, why, why are we asking people to come in and work at a desk yeah. for eight hours a day? It, it is weird, and again, I'm looking at myself here because I think I'm really open-minded. I often, uh, we work as a branding agency, obviously, and, and when we get a new briefing, I often encourage the guys to go out to a, a, a museum or do something different to think around ideas. Um, so I think I'm really modern in my thinking, but we're actually in um, a, a workspace group building with a glass front offices, a little bit like a WeWork, and the offices around us, I don't think I see the same people at their desks day in, day out. So although I think I'm being quite dynamic, the fact is that all these new businesses around us with quite young people in them have a different workforce every day. So they're obviously embracing Agile very thoroughly. So I, mean, I, I would challenge you to, like, next week... Yeah, um, what, what are my steps? If, if you was giving me three steps for Agile... It starts with you set, setting the tone for your business and, and um, you know, leading by example. And I would say go home and think about how you personally could work in, a, in an alternative, flexible way and then just announce to your company that that's what you're going to do next Wednesday. Just say only next, me. <laughs> yeah, next Wednesday, guys, you know, I'm going to work in an Agile way, which means that I'm going to start at midday and uh, I'll be at Starbucks down the road. There's a lot of the new workspaces are sort of building that into their environment, you know, so w- w- even in the one we're at, you've got um, a little phone booth room where you can go and hide away, and there's little booths downstairs you can squirrel away in, and, and, and also big open plan areas that you can, you can go and sit and work. So yeah. I'm trying to encourage people to sort of break away from their norms. There are some, I mean, there are some really interesting workplace redesign projects yeah. you know the two organizations that i've worked for recently is deloitte and the bbc yeah. both have had major building projects going on so bbc opened up the brand new media city uk campus up in salford deloitte opened up a, an, an amazing new head office in uh, new street square in london both of those projects are fantastic examples of building modern workplaces mm. and I use the latest example of Deloitte so Deloitte looked at the way that you know it wanted to design its office and it was all based around different ways of working and creating spaces to help people work in different ways so there were team collaboration spaces so a team could basically rent or not rent but book a table for a day so they could work collaboratively and that table came with like this massive monitor that everyone could gather around there were like individual booths that you could lock yourself away in so if you needed to get your head down and finish a report you could lock yourself away there's like a games room area so people could just like break out and have some relaxation time there was your standard kind of desks set up and it was all based on understanding that people needed to work in different ways, in different modes, in different times, in different contexts, yeah. and to be able yeah. to support that. A lot of the podcasts I've done before, um, Neil Usher, uh, Jenny Jones, who worked on Fjord, they talk about breakout threshold areas, so you, you literally cross a threshold into a new space so that the, the light and the feeling and the, the acoustics are all different depending on what you want from that area. I'm sure that the BBC and Deloitte we're very good at being, uh, with regards to accessibility, inclusivity, but I'm sure you've visited lots of buildings where they haven't quite met your standards. Yeah, I mean, I've worked in offices where there was one disabled toilet in the whole building and lots of people 
whether they had a vis- visible disability or not, were using that toilet. And I was late to meetings because I couldn't use the disabled toilet. I've worked... My first job out of university was with Accenture as an IT consultant, which meant that I was on site at client offices. I've worked in some very strange places. The strangest place I worked was was basically in, in a 1940s BT telephone exchange, which was <laughs> it was a building that was completely empty, apart from a team of 50 IT consultants that they housed in there. But it had really bad wheelchair access. I mean, the only way into the building was for me to use the the goods lift with loads of um, BT cabling. Yeah, because they they used this place as a storage place for like um, phone, you know, cabling and stuff like that. So I used to have to go into the basement, through into the building, through the basement, up up the goods lift. And then I was happily working away one day, and the the, the, the health and safety manager came round and said that I wasn't allowed to work in the building because there was no way that I could get out if there was a fire. So I was then banned from the building. <laughs> that helps you work your day of work. It's like, great, you know, thanks for that. Shouting instructions from the window. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, we're working on a project at the minute, um, and I won't name names, but they, because they're doing a new building, they were talking about the fact that when they actually started to look into their policies about things like this, they saw out of date that they completely... They're all like quite unpleasantly shocked by the fact that they're so out of date and having to review everything properly. Yeah. So that when their new building comes in, they're not doing exactly what you talked about before of the bare minimum. They want to be much more inclusive and and, and you know you, they don't want to be a tick box on a, yeah. on, a on a building uh, building merchant a building regs yeah uh, document. And 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 actually that's a really good point because so many new build new new buildings or redevelopments or redesigns, um, you know, architects and engineers and you know designers will look at the the regulations and they and they'll they'll put in a compliant disabled toilet for example yeah. and and say well you know that's good enough it meets the regulations oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's two things wrong with that one, one is that you're building a building that's you know going to last 50 odd years yet society has changed so much in 50 years is your building in 50 years time going to be fit for purpose if you yeah. think about today's requirements and regulations yeah. question number 1 Question number two is, um, actually, can you be a lot more creative and be a lot more inclusive um, than just sticking to the bare minimum? And so I'll, 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 give, I'll give you a sort of a classic example. Like This is when I was working at the BBC. Um, you know, As you know, the BBC had a period of consolidating its buildings and you know, redeveloping a lot of buildings, opening up like BBC North up in Salford and the, the new broadcasting house in, in central London. And they put these kind of like in the meeting rooms, they put these sound absorbing panels and they were really distracting because they had lots of little holes in them. We got complaints from autistic people saying that the visualness of those sound boards were really distracting and really quite discomforting. But actually, we started getting complaints from loads of people that they really struggled having meetings in those meeting rooms because of the distracting background in the room and the, and the lighting that went with it. So actually, I think if you, if you think about design in a more inclusive way, take an example of like, you know, what would it be like with somebody in a wheelchair navigating this building? I've seen something, I mean, 
I've got to stress here, I don't watch it a lot, but there was something like DIY SOS on the other day. Nick Knowles, who I've just heard described as the poor man's Nick Knowles, he actually, fair play to him, he actually built a wooden frame that would be exact size of the wheelchair and then started to walk around the house because can't remember the very flamboyant designer but he was designing it and he'd not really paid that much attention to the requirements of this guy that was moving back in yeah. and Nick Knowles walked around with his wooden frame just banging into everything and he said this is going to be really horrible for him we need to fix this and they had to go back to the drawing board and redo it but I think if architects were to go around with a wooden frame rather than looking at a plan and saying that's that's the right distance yeah. you know that that meets regs yeah yeah and and if they did that I know for a fact that they will be designing a building that is much more user-friendly and enjoyable to use for everybody, not just disabled people that they first have in mind. Which opens things up, doesn't it? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. When you talk about physical spaces, there's a a sort of semi-amusing story about your ferry trip where you're sort of just realising the joys of starting your own business. (laughs) But then, uh, and, and decide to take the boat home. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was the story. So I, I had a meeting down in Canary Wharf. So I live in southwest London. I had to get to East London. Uh, my meeting was at rush hour. I really, being in a wheelchair, I really did not want to go on the tube or yeah. the trains at rush hour. But I had to get to Canary Wharf for this meeting on time. And I was just like, oh, how the hell do I get to Canary Wharf? You know, and yeah. avoid the tube and the trains. And then my boyfriend reminded me that we only live like two minutes from the river and there's this river taxi uh, that I could get. And I was like, brilliant, you know, I could get on the boat. The boat has got a coffee shop on so I could have a cup of tea. Yeah, um, living my best life. Yeah, it's quieter. You know, this really is the freelancer's life, isn't it? Yeah. You, know, you know, sit back and like chill out on the boat and just, you know, watch the world go by. And I managed to get on the boat. I couldn't actually get in the boat. Because they, my wheelchair has got like a little bolt underneath yeah. uh, for my car, so that um, when I'm being driven in my car, that I can it like locks me into position. But the thing is, it's so close to the ground, it like catches on every or catches on things. And on the lip of this boat door was a, you know, obviously a lip, yeah. so I couldn't get into the boat. So I ended up sitting on the outside deck for 45 minutes. Coasty warm, I yeah. imagine. <laughs> and I like, completely froze to death. Oh, no. Like, you know, the weather outside was like two degrees and it was like blustery and all that. Oh, God, that's yeah. horrible. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, if we, if we talk about inclusive design, you know, I, yeah. I think the, you know, I need to write to the boat company actually because it's such a simple solution to fix because all they need is like a little threshold ramp mm. to get over the little. I understand why there's a lip, you know, it's probably, well, it's a sealed. Water or, yeah, yeah it's, it's like one of those sealed doors and stops water getting in and it's quite simple to fix yeah, uh, yeah. with a little threshold ramp. Yeah. Um, I think TFL, I know they're probably taking more action on things now, but TFL generally throughout London seems to be a bit of a struggle for me. I'm always really shocked how many little uh, wheelchair stickers you see on the map. Yeah, very few stations. I mean, yeah. they, they've got grand plans to make more tube stations accessible. Yeah. Um, there was certainly a big a big emphasis on making the tube accessible around the, you know, the Olympic Games and, and since, and they've done a lot of changes mm. in making stations accessible, um, which is good, but we have a long way to go. I've read a really interesting phrase a little while ago, or, or a quote rather. Lots of companies don't succeed over time. What they do fundamentally wrong is miss the future. It's by Larry Page. 
But I also noticed you'd done a, a list of predictions for 2019. So what do you see coming next? Well, there's a couple of things coming next. Um, there are a lot more organisations talking about diversity and inclusion, partly driven by the gender pay gap. So companies of a certain size are now having to report their gender pay gap and those companies are now asking themselves, you know, what next? You know, what do we need to do to improve diversity within the business? So companies will be employing a lot more diversity and inclusion managers because companies are realising now that this is such a big business critical thing. Companies are waking up to the fact that you this can't be done as a little part-time job yeah. to somebody else's role. You know, like a HR business partner doing it part-time on, on the side of their job that it does take dedicated effort. So they are hiring dedicated diversity and inclusion managers to lead the change. And there, there's a lot of companies talking about culture as well. Quite a lot of them talking about a culture of belonging. And that means that companies understand that, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yeah, yeah. Um, and unless you get the culture right within your business, yeah, yeah. people are not going to want to stay working for you. Yeah. Um, so a lot of companies are thinking about, you know, what is their culture? How do they define it? Some companies are talking about creating a culture of belonging. You feel like you belong to an organisation. It's, um, it's funny, we talked with Neil Usher about um, the Google slide, and I think the same quote came up yeah. about the fact that so people see that and they think, oh, we'd like a culture like Google, so they go and buy a slide <laughs> rather than actually p- apply themselves to changing the culture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, culture is the, the sum of my, you know, lots of little behaviours. Mm. Um, mm. So you need to tackle behaviour, and, mm. and then that will that will shape your culture. So I mean, putting a slide in your office isn't going to change your culture. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so what are the predictions you've got? I think um, customer experience is one big one. When I wrote the um, the article about sort of my predictions, um, my mind has actually changed because there, there's a really great diversity and inclusion consultant out there called Charlotte Sweeney. And she, and quite rightly, she said, you know, maybe we shouldn't be talking about predictions. Maybe we should be talking about hopes instead. And actually, I think I'm going to sort of go back and look at that article and write another one and say, these were my predictions. But actually, I'm going to sort of reframe them and say, these are my hopes for the end of the year as well. So one of my hopes is around, um, you know, customer experiences. I think quite often when we talk about diversity and inclusion, we're talking about workforce diversity and inclusion we don't understand how our customers are touched by that or impacted by that. And actually how, if you design the customer experience, you can make life so much better for people. So I'll I'll give you a classic example. Um, So I know somebody who's working with airports at the moment at how autistic people um, go through an airport and the fact that an airport journey, your typical airport journey is quite confusing. Wayfinding is difficult. Um, they're noisy places. Yeah. Um, very stressful, aren't they? Yeah, lots of bright lights. Yeah. Um, very disorientating. Not particularly relaxing places to be. Um, and everyone's hell bent on you know, getting to their flight, and it's really stressful. Yeah, and then you break out after the after the stress of finding where to go. They force you to go shopping in the most horrific mall environment exactly. you've ever been experienced. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, she she's working with airports, looking at how to improve the customer experience for yeah. people with autism. Yeah. And then I just thought, actually, that's genius because if you improve the customer experience for people with autism, make it less noisy, less bright, 
much more clear on where to go but the whole point is if you if you design the experience through the eyes of somebody with autism Mm. you're going to make life better for everybody i think that's such a fundamental design principle that people can take with them if only i design you know whatever i'm designing if only i designed that through the eyes of yeah somebody who's autistic somebody who can't see very well somebody who can't hear very well somebody who can't use their hands very well yeah how can i create a better product a better building a better environment uh, or a better service that makes a lot of sense really Mm. interesting actually on on the subject of hope are we moving in the right direction or do you think we're, we're too slow at the moment? We've been moving in the right direction for a very long time. You know, people have been working at diversity and inclusion for yeah. decades now. You know, and we do, you know, we constantly make progress. I think that those that have been in the, in the industry for a long time are saying, well, I've been doing this for like 30 years. Wow. You know, surely, surely my job is done and <laughs> you know, yet there's so much more to do. Yeah. I just yeah. think it's work in progress, you know. It, we're, it, it's about human design, um, human interaction. Yeah. You know, for as long as humans are on the planet. Yeah, yeah. We're going we can to always, have, always get better, yeah, can't we? We're just going to have to continue having the conversation, but most importantly, taking action mm. to create much more inclusive workplaces and, and environments. What I sometimes worry about, and this is on a number of levels, whether it's Brexit, homophobia, racism, that we live in a little bit of a London bubble. And, you know, I can see that there's some positive moves going diversity-wise in, in a lot of different fields, especially in architecture and certainly in the things I've worked with, with some great architects. Are we sort of in this bubble and, and we sort of, we're sort of lying to ourselves a bit that we're moving forward, but we're still the rest of England to sort out? And that might seem very naive of me, but sometimes I feel that we are in this sort of bubble of, of, of thinking that things are moving forward rapidly, but they might need to be a bit more of a kick up the arse. Yeah, I mean, diversity and inclusion is involves the whole country. Mm. And, you know, L- London is is a, a very you know diverse city mm. um, in so many aspects. You know, when if you compare London to other parts of the country, I mean, I grew up in the West Country, mm-hmm. um, in the yeah, in the countryside, there is not much diversity there's biodiversity (laughs) (laughs) Um, but the um the thing is diversity exists everywhere Um, but what we need to be talking about is about inclusion and wherever your organization is you, you will be operating in a diverse place because i think quite often we talk about diversity in terms of gender ethnicity sexuality disability but actually diversity comes in so many forms it's like an iceberg yeah, most yeah. Of, most of it is under the waterline yeah. so you know where you went to school what kind of parenting upbringing you had whether you're introverted or extroverted that's all diversity as well it's just difference and we're all different and I think we have to be really careful, actually, that when we talk about diversity, that we don't alienate certain people where people go, oh, hang on, I'm not the diverse one here. They then don't join the conversation because they don't see themselves as diverse. But yeah. everybody's diverse. Yeah, everyone's diverse. Everyone's got something to bring to the party. And, and are you noticing at events like this, the DNI Leaders uh, event, that you're getting more people? It's, it's getting more of a following. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of talk and buzz about diversity and inclusion. Um, yeah, you know, businesses are talking a lot about it in, internally, a lot more than they used to. You know, companies often go on a journey, so you know, if they're new to it, maybe they're new to it because of some sort of new 
compliance or maybe somebody's taken them to court over some sort of discrimination or harassment or something mm. like that and that makes them pay attention that something has to happen yeah. um, then, then they might think of it as a CSR activity and then they then they understand that actually you know, diversity is good business so there, yeah. is, a, there yeah. is a business case and then they and then they think well actually we are diverse but actually you know people don't feel included so let's talk about inclusion so they go on a journey um, I'd love to see uh, diversity be more of a just day-to-day than a CSR project. <laughs> yeah, know? I mean, it should be part of everything we do. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and, and uh, what a lot of people talk about, you know, the, the DNI practitioners, I think one of their biggest headaches is, you know, why isn't diversity and inclusion treated like any other business-critical thing? You know, it, like, if I was to tell you, if you, would, if I, if you were creating a new product... And, uh, and and you came to me and said it's going to take me twenty years to develop this product and get to market. I'd go like, what the hell? Yeah, like, yeah you can't yeah. take twenty years to get this shit done. Yeah, you know. Yeah. But it is acceptable for people to say, well, diversity and inclusion is going to take twenty years to have you know gender parity at board level. You know, yeah, no, yeah. no, this, this is urgent. This has to become a bit business critical thing. You have to be treating it. As seriously as you do your PNL, as mm. seriously as you do your marketing plan, you know, as seriously as you do your, you know, your growth strategy, you know, th- this is your diversity and inclusion plan has to be sit alongside those business critical activities that you do. Toby, I thought that was really interesting. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. It was really good. Thank you for taking time out of the conference for us. You've been listening to the Spacecraft Podcast, presented by Dan Mosscrop, brought to you by them.co.uk, who provides specialist graphic design support for commercial architects, developers, and interior designers. We'll be back with another episode soon, so please subscribe and keep listening.